Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 60, In the Way of Listening, Honduras, where Jared became a citizen. This week is special. I always try to get strangers to tell me their travel stories and how they've changed as a result of their experiences abroad. I go out of my way to meet people who will surprise me, like the Berber nomad who refused to tell me his story, or the Muslim DJ I met in the Alps, who quit playing trance music to get closer to God, or when I met Jesus outside the Cathedral of Seville. Turned out he was from Poland. That's all the way back in episode five, and you should check it out. But sometimes the familiar surprises most. Anyone who knows Jared Brown has been changed by him. He's like a dynamo, generating and transferring massive quantities of energy wherever he goes. He recently gave a TED talk where you can hear the enthusiasm literally crackling through his voice as he outlines the work that has consumed his life for almost two decades. So over the last decade, the numbers of people living in extreme poverty around the globe have been cut dramatically. During that same time span, there's been incredible advancements in technology and globalization. So today, now more than ever, those masses still living in poverty are aware more than ever of just exactly what they're missing out on living in the global south. Honduras, for example. Honduras has the largest population of immigrants coming to the U.S. illegally, per capita, more so than any other country in the world right now. The thing about Jared is, not only does he inspire others, but he also is truly, deeply affected by the places he goes and the people he meets. I really don't know anyone else quite like him. Starting in Choloteca, Honduras in 2002, he's built an organization called Mission Lazarus that, in his own words, glorifies God by advancing his kingdom through holistic ministry and social enterprise with educational, medical, agricultural, and spiritual outreaches. There's a coffee farm, a leather workshop, and in a few weeks, a benefit concert featuring Carrie Underwood and Sam Hunt. I don't think it's too late to buy tickets. It's in Nashville, September 7th. Look it up. Search for Songs on a Mission. He's also a figure who's loomed large in my life. Honduras was the first country I visited outside the U.S. when I was 17. And on subsequent trips there, I saw the beginnings of Mission Lazarus which has grown by leaps and bounds every year and pulled nearly everyone I grew up going to church with into its orbit. They've since expanded their operations into Haiti, and I can't wait for my chance to go there. So I just had to ask Jared, what happened to him? You know, working for a nonprofit, um, walking away from chasing the American dream was not in my family's plans at all. It's not what my family did. Uh, my father was the first person in his family to go to college. Uh, worked his way through college, got out, got drafted during Vietnam. Uh, did the whole military thing, got out. Um, uh, couldn't, couldn't really support a family on, I think he had a biology degree or something. Mm -hmm. Took advantage of the GI Bill, went back to school, got an accounting degree, got an MBA, got a CPA, and worked his way to the top of uh, an auto parts manufacturing company. Did really good. And, um, you know, I was one of the lucky guys for college. Um, my dad just wrote a check and um we grew up my childhood we we were we we were very frugal 
uh, I would have, my observation was that we were poor. I don't think we were nearly as poor as I thought, but my parents lived a very, very simple frugal lifestyle in particular uh, before I was in college. So uh, through childhood and high school, I think the level of success had increased enough by the time I was in college that their lifestyle had changed significantly. Uh, my little sister, who's six years younger than me, who you know, she's your age, I think. Yeah. Uh, her childhood was very different than mine and my older sisters. Interesting. Um, so, you know, my first vehicle was a 79 Ford F100 that I saved my $3,000 working <laughs> odd jobs to buy. And hers was a little cute sports car off the dealership lot paid for by mom and dad. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started at the University of Tennessee. Uh, so in high, in, in high school, my dad told me because he had, he had business dealings all over the world, but really heavy in Latin America, Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, Chile, and Argentina in particular. And, you know, he's the top finance guy, but everywhere you go, he has to have somebody translating for you. Mm. And so in kind of thinking of things from the world's point of view, it didn't matter his authority and his power. There was some crony translator that really held the power because yeah. my dad couldn't do anything without him. So he encouraged me to study Spanish in high school. Told me if I took four years of Spanish in high school that um, he would take me on a trip to Mexico. You know, for someone from Tennessee, kind of a country boy, that was a that was a big deal. Um, so, got out of high school, went to college. A trip to Mexico never happened. <laughs> Are you serious? Absolutely. But after my second year of college, I found an opportunity to go study at the University of Madrid, Universidad Complutense de Madrid, <laughs> and I mean that seemed like a long shot. I really didn't understand my father's success. Like most kids don't, it, you don't, you don't need to. And they said, sure, we'll send you, you know, you didn't go to Mexico. So we'll send you to Spain for a summer, um, to go to school. And so I did, it was great experience, eye opening life, life, uh, changing, transformative, just to change your worldview, getting out of, you know, getting out of the South, out of the Bible belt, and seeing other people, other cultures. That is exactly uh, what I want to dig down into. Uh, that's what this podcast is about. And I want to see if we can pin it to a particular moment. Uh, but before we do, there's a question I usually start with, which is, can you describe what you look like for the listener? <laughs> Give them a picture <laughs> of um, who you're listening to. So I have a um, <laughs> have a long, skinny Scottish nose. Um, I have really green, like the greenest ocean, beautiful ocean eyes. Um, I have a square jawline and chin. Traits, um, <laughs> smaller mouth. Um, I guess regular size ears. Maybe till I hit seventy and they keep growing more. <laughs> Brown hair that's um, short but shaggy. Uh, brushed back. Uh, not brushed back. Pushed back with my hands. No brush. No. <laughs> No hairstyling taking place. And I typically wear heavy, heavy, thick plastic rimmed glasses uh, that without, I cannot see, but I also think take people away from being so drawn into how big my nose is. <laughs> that is a very rich description. Uh, before my next question, I just have to ask. The nose could go back to uh, Eastern European, uh, possibly Jewish roots as well. You know, big noses in a couple of different ethnicities. <laughs> Interesting. 
Uh, did you give a lot of thought to your appearance for your TEDx talk? <laughs> no, it was just me. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. We'll circle back. As a matter of fact, looking at the video, like, man, I should have gotten my hair trimmed up. It's shaggy down my neck. I was in, I was on a project in Haiti for two or three weeks and literally flew to the U.S. for that. Wow. And so, um, yeah. Okay, we'll circle back to that later. Uh, my next question is, can you describe where you are for the listeners? Oh, wow. Um, so I'm in, uh, I'm in Central America. I'm in the capital of Honduras called Tegucigalpa. Um, there's nothing that really anybody would come here to see tourist-wise. Uh, if you're here, uh, it's for business or because you're with an aid group or, um, or something like that. I'm actually, you know, in a guilty pleasure. I'm in a very modern, very luxurious Hyatt Place hotel um, with uh, cable from around the world, Europe, Asia, the U.S., South America, and great Wi-Fi. Okay. <laughs> Which I'm only here very... for so I'm soaking it in. Just did my uh, jogging routine on the in the gym here. I usually do it in a village uh, with dogs chasing me. So it's great. <laughs> and uh, I really do want to go back to the Madrid moment, but before that, I think you should introduce your project to the listeners. Can you summarize what you've been working on all these years? Yeah, so um, our organization is called Mission Lazarus. Um, we're right in the middle of trying to nail down our messaging and better, <laughs> a better job with that. It's been a big struggle because we do so much. But um, I think what we do is we have four areas that we use that are our development initiatives. They focus on human development, family development, community development, and economic development. And we come at all of these programs from, um, from a business point of view as Christian businessmen and women. So uh, transparency in finances, fiscal accountability, but also treating people with dignity and worthiness are some of our guiding factors. And the only reason we do any of it is um, so that we can have an opportunity to share our faith, uh, our faith in Christ. We, um, we don't require anyone to be in a awkward study, to be in a forced prayer, uh, to jump in a puddle of water to receive our treatment or be a part of our programs. Uh, we're about building relationships and meeting people where they're at, where they're at, where they're at in life, in sin, in addiction, in, in, whatever, in whatever it is, in poverty, and all that carries. And we, we truly believe that was Christ's approach. We don't believe that he, but we know that he did not call out people. Lifestyles were different and humiliate them, whether he agreed with the lifestyle or not. He met people where they were, and that's what we want to do. Um, we have a couple guiding principles for everything that we do. Three questions we ask. Is this initiative sustainable? Does it create dependency? which we don't want to do, and does it promote local leadership development? And so if it's not sustainable, and sustainable is a really big word, has a lot of big meetings. We could spend an hour just talking about that. Mm -hmm. but if it's not sustainable, we don't want to do it. If it creates dependency, we don't want to do it. And if it doesn't promote development of local leadership, we don't want to do it. Those are kind of our, our litmus tests for anything that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. I see. So we've been around for 15 years. We currently have ongoing operations in Honduras and in Haiti. And um, one of the things we get the most excited about is our, our economic development through social enterprise, creating um, employment opportunities in, in, deployment, in employment deprived communities. 
Um, and since I do uh, travel with a U.S. passport, that gives me access to a market that is very consumer driven. And the most sustainable way to create economic growth is through local markets. But when local markets do not allow a human to have a, a dignified wage, and when, for better or worse, countries have signed free trade agreements all over the world, well, as a businessman, I'm going to take advantage of CAFTA and I'm going to export products to the U.S. with no tariffs, and we're going to pay people great wages. Mm. And uh, it's working and uh, we've got great dreams of, of it growing dramatically. Uh, you know, we hope that our dreams align with uh, what God wants for us. Absolutely. So, Jared, what happened to you? <laughs> this is a question I've wanted to ask for a long time. You know, you were just... Uh, an unseen presence in your bedroom when I played with your sister. I played Clue in the basement and I saw your bedroom once. That, that's all I remembered of you until I met you again in Honduras years later, which, uh, you know, Honduras was my first um, country that I visited outside the U.S. And Tegucigalpa, I would disagree with you. I think there's lots of reason to go there. It's a profound, <laughs> it was a profound experience for me, which I'll tell another time. But... <laughs> What happened to you to, you were starting to tell the story, but like, what happened to you? Why, why are you not in the U.S.? Why are you doing this? Um, I, I really don't know. You know, I, I got an education in Europe, in Madrid, at Oxford, and at the University of Buenos Aires. Got a great degree, great education, really expensive education, took a dream job as a consultant in Houston in the international department of a very large company. And um, I, I really don't know. I mean, I love luxury stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm like anybody. I, I love nice stuff. I like taking trips and staying in nice places, eating nice food and drinking fine wine. I mean, and I, I really don't know why. Um, I mean, something happened on on when I came to Honduras after hurting Mitch to help build houses. And being the only one in the group of people here that could speak the language, it's really easy to ignore people begging when you have no idea what they're saying. Mm. But when you hear... When, there, when a natural disaster has just gone through that, I think the estimates were maybe like 30,000 people were killed in Central America. And, and the destruction is so massive. And you just came from the 11th richest county in the U.S. It does something different for everyone. Some people flee it. Some people think about, can't wait to get back to the U.S., some people are touched profoundly and are just so thankful for how good they have it in the U.S. and really kind of sucks for those people in that country. Since I could hear their stories and for some reason was able to see that I did nothing special to have been born with the opportunity to have a U.S. passport. It's not a, it's not a right. It, it was a crapshoot. Um, it, I don't want to get. I don't want all. I don't want to get all all Christianese on you. You're welcome but, to. <laughs> well, a lot of Americans justify an over the top lifestyle. A lot of Christians justify it and say, "Well, even Christ said that I've come so you can have life and life to the fullest." Well, that tells me that people living in shanty towns 
and then stick houses with roofs made of plastic, tin, pieces of clay tile, dirt floors, their kids plagued by chronic hookworms. That tells me that that is not Christ again said that we'll always have the poor. Okay, that's fine. But he came so we have life to the fullest. And these people living this way is not life to the fullest. And the U.S. was in a unique position at World War II. The, the, the table had, a, everybody had a pretty even deck. The entire globe had a pretty even deck before World War II. And we were in a unique position because of a large country with two coasts. It's key to have a coastline on the Pacific and the Atlantic. Gives us a lot of power. And it allowed us to, to be able to propel development. And, and so much of the world has never caught up. And maybe they wouldn't, but Latin America shouldn't be so far behind. And uh, it's when you when you when you when you spend some time to learn more about our foreign policy to a lot of these places. I'm not some left liberal that says give everything away. I'm a capitalist. I am a capitalist. You, I believe I, I, in making money. <laughs> I gasped when uh, when I heard that in your TEDx talk, <laughs> but I know it's true. Yeah, I believe in capitalism. Yeah, I do, and I, I see how an opportunity for an entrepreneur to put his thoughts to work uh, can be so much more powerful for transformation of their life than any aid program ever dreamed of being mm -hmm. so i don't i don't know i don't know what happened I, I really don't know um did i make a left turn when i should have gone right um did i trip and stumble into this or you know is it is it really what you know where god wanted me to believe i wanted me to be i tend to believe it's where god wanted me to be mm -hmm. um he's protected me from a lot of crazy things from uh, dangers from jails, from disease. Um, would you mind? Would you mind telling uh, some of those stories? Uh, you know, lots have filtered through uh, over the years. I know you've faced a lot of things. Well. Um, um, Honduras just being uh, a country with a central government that's not the strongest due to corruption. Mm -hmm. They have a democratically elected government and um, seem to play an important role, but corruption, uh, when you have millions of dollars available from drug cartels, uh, so that you'll turn to other, turn your head, it, it's amazing what happens to people. It doesn't matter what country you're in, U.S. as well. So um, a, a central government that's not real strong and a police force that has been plagued with corruption, um, you know, that, that, that allowed us two years ago to Honduras have the highest murder rate in the world. It's just bizarre, you know, 1,500 miles south of Houston. Um, so just the inherent danger of living in a country with that is, um, is, is nerve wracking. Um, I've had opportunity to visit a whole lot of other countries throughout the Caribbean, Central America and South America, uh, as a contractor with another NGO out of the U S to do, to survey, um, disasters after natural disasters and put together proposals. Um, and, that wound me up in a uh, in a jail um, about 12 hours from Havana in Cuba. Um, really long story, uh, but interrogated in a little room for five hours. Um, should not. At the time, the U.S. had five Cubans in prison. They were released. Uh, uh, 
about two years ago, I believe now, um, they, you, you can, your, your listeners can Google it. They're called the, the Cinco, Cinco Cuban Airways. Um, the Cinco Airways Cubanos, the five Cuban heroes. It, they got a really bad deal. It was, it's bizarre. Uh, but anyhow, Haiti, uh, excuse me, Cuba was looking for pawns. There was no reason why they let me go. Um, uh, except for, you know, God maybe wanting me to, um, uh, get back to my family and what I was doing in Honduras. Um, you know, we, we, um, we take child welfare very seriously. Um, the, the numbers of, um, of men from the U S and Western Europe that travel across the globe every year for sex tourism, uh, in particular with minors, with children is alarming. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, discovering a man that had, was in our Southern rural part of Honduras who had, who had, um, uh, been raping young girls, getting him arrested, uh, having death threats, um, having to send my family to the U S uh, you know, in 18 hours notice. Um, are you able to talk about that, uh, emotionally? I mean, uh, I remember when that happened. Um, you know what? Um, I actually, you know, that happened in 2000 and, um, and he ended up paying a large bribe and got off in Honduras. And, uh, then we were threatened with slander lawsuits in the U S it was a big secret. Oh, so the threats came from him. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I thought the threats were from Hondurans. I didn't hear this. Well, we, we don't we don't know confirmed who it was. We we turned the threads over to the Honduran investigation police, kind of like your local you know, the TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. It'd be kind of like that locally here in Honduras. They investigated. That's who they feel it is. Uh, you know, we we don't know for sure, but the pieces matched up. Um. So that kind of got swept under the table and it felt really bad about the impunity that exists in so many developing nations mm-hmm. and the fact that a predator was continuing to live this lifestyle, continue to come to Honduras. Uh, but you know, um, life catches up with you, I think. And uh, he was arrested in Tennessee last July, charged with sex trafficking of young women from Honduras to Tennessee. And it's actually, that was in like, I don't know, August or something. And we, we've, we were contacted by Homeland Security and had to give statements and it's still pending trial. So I, I really, really would love to talk about those details, but I probably shouldn't just visit. Sure. Well, I was just curious, uh, you know, that's something that everyone is afraid of with travel, you know, facing the worst, just, I mean, receiving a death threat is horrifying. I, I imagine, did it really disrupt your work? Like, yeah, you know, this was our home. Uh, both of my kids were born here. Um, this will blow your mind. <laughs> this is my passport. Whoa. Oh my gosh. You're holding up a blue Honduran passport. Jared, yeah. when did that happen? <laughs> um, my wife and I, we got sworn in as naturalized citizens of Honduras about two years ago. Wow. Um, wow. We, we didn't denounce our U.S. citizenship. Um, Honduras allows for dual citizenship. Um, both of our kids are born here. They love Honduras. They travel on a Honduran passport. They uh, they have dual, dual citizenship as well. And just our commitment. Um, I will never be able to hide my complexion 
and I can speak great Spanish and many times people ask if I'm from Spain or from Argentina. Um, but I'll never not be an American. It's just, it's, 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 it's wired into you. I'll never know what it means to not get your first pair of shoes till you're 13, um, to, uh, suffer the way so many suffer. Uh, but I can do more than just lip service and I can do something legally that binds me to a country that's in need. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people doing great things in the U S to help the less fortunate in the U S that's, it's really awesome. I think it's very hard to work in a country where there's so many safety nets that it's hard to get people to fully take advantage of opportunities. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I, with my gifts, I don't feel like I can have a big impact in the U S but I do feel like I can have a big, big impact here. And um, out of just a practicality, having to renew my, uh, my hundred residency every five years was expensive. Mm-hmm. And citizenship doesn't expire. And, um, you know, last um, Thursday, I was meeting with the Secretary of State of Honduras. Um, and it gives a lot of credibility when he's speaking to a fellow Honduran. Yeah. The man of Chinese descent, whose entire family, his mom, all of his siblings and cousins are all now U.S. citizens that live in the U.S. And when I asked him, why did you stay here? He said, I can't make an impact in the U.S., but I can still have an impact here. And um, uh, it's a powerful statement. Yeah. What other ways has your work in Honduras changed you, do you think? Um, what other ways has it changed me? Um, I see poor people. I see people with uneducate, with lack of education. Uh, you know what? All people being created equal that maybe that lasts for a nanosecond at the moment of conception, but (laughs) that is not true. Not true. Just the lack of proper nutrition in the womb does so much to affect the development of humans brain and lowers IQ. It can greatly limit the success you can have in life. Yeah. And those are the people we work with. I'm not obviously not though we work with people like that and we work with incredibly gifted people as well from mm-hmm. the same villages. How, how come DNA for one both struggle from malnutrition in the womb maybe or as childhood? How come one was able to have a great mental development and the other one, it, it didn't. Um, when you work with people with very low education levels, um, it can be really frustrating. And when you have a very high education, um, a really good education, I think there's a tendency to write those people off. I think that our the country of the U.S. has a long history of viewing people uh, without refinement, so maybe you could say, as subhuman mm-hmm. had a very very tough history in that mm-hmm. um and i don't think that that sentiment stopped just at um emancipation um and i think that carries on i think it's a very easy sentiment to fall into yeah. you're educated and when you have wealth and you have access to resources which inherently, whether you want it or not, gives you power. And so it's really easy to, um, it's really easy to quickly uh, think of yourself as better than Mm. others. Mm. And so if Honduras has taught me anything, it's taught me that, um, that again, I, I did nothing to be born in the U.S. I could have just as easily been born in that village. And I really wish 
if I'd been in that village, I really wish that somebody would have come along and showed me how to do something else. I don't want free food. I want to do something. And I may not get rich and I may not have power. My kids may not either. You know what? Maybe my grandkids, maybe that legacy of poverty is broken for my grandkids. I don't start now. And if no one comes to make that investment, even those living in poverty oftentimes don't realize that there is a way out. You know, we planted, we have a, we have a lot of land down here uh, that our programs sit on operations and we replanted one piece of land with 3000 mahogany trees two years ago. And we, uh, we hired the, the campesino farmers, the peasant farmers, gave them jobs to, to, to make the nursery, to plant the seed, sprout the trees, to grow the trees to 18 inches tall, and then to plant the trees. And um, they laughed and, and made fun of this crazy gringo and all this money to plant these trees. And he's never going to get to cut them down and make money off of them. Because it'll take 60 years before they're ready to be cut down. Yeah. They, they've never had anyone talk to them about seeing for the future, you know, changing a legacy, having a long-term vision. Why would they? They're trying to survive today. Why would they think about the future? You know, people come down here or come to Haiti and they're like, they need to pick up their garbage. I can't believe how much garbage. Why don't they pick up their garbage? It's like, do, do you not see the living conditions? This, this mother wants her kid to have food. You want your kid to quit crying because it's bad chronic ear infection. She could care less that her country doesn't look like Brentwood, Tennessee. She doesn't want a pretty yard like Naperville, Illinois. She just wants to survive. And you know, that's the first thing that I hear out of people over and over and over the garbage. Look beyond the garbage. Look at that house behind that garbage. You see how pretty that, that, that little yard, they call the patio here? There's not any garbage in it, they sweep it clean. But when the government doesn't provide, because the government have the resources either, trash collection, there is no landfill, <laughs> where are you gonna put the garbage? <laughs> Give me a break. Travel changes the way you see, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, Mark Twain put it best. Are you familiar with this quote? Uh, I think I can guess which one. About what travel does to, uh, it's prejudices, right? It, uh, yeah. Said, uh, travel is fatal to prejudice and narrow mindedness. (laughs) It's a classic. It's great. Uh, I wanted to mention two other quotations, actually. You made me think of Wendell Berry when you mentioned planting the mahogany trees. Have you heard of Wendell Berry? I've not. He's a Christian poet that writes about nature a lot. He, well, he's a farmer. And uh, he says, plant sequoias. You know? Oh, I've heard this quote before. What is it? That, that's what it. I mean, the whole poem is... is oh. Beautiful. Okay. I haven't yeah. memorized the whole poem, but just that one, just plant sequoias. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Plant a crop yeah. that you'll never harvest, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I also, I wanted to quote you. <laughs> I want to read something to you that you said and then get your reaction to it. So I pulled this from that TEDx talk. You said very passionately, we still fail to honor the very declaration that our country was founded on through willful ignorance of its application to other people groups around the world. Let me ask, what, what message were you trying to convey in that TED Talk? What we 
made a declaration of independence, and in it we declared, we made a statement about humanity. We made a statement about humanity. We didn't say, this is what we <laughs> declare for people that live in these 13 colonies that will grow to 50 states. We made a general statement about humanity. <laughs> But we only want that to apply to us. <laughs> but we can get cheap t-shirts from a sweatshop in Haiti where they're getting paid 60 cents an hour. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Go Gildan! <laughs> <laughs> and we wonder why the 50,000 Haitians in the U.S. with TSP status right now that's going to end in six months are upset. <laughs> I mean, sorry, TPS, temporary protective status, are upset <laughs> because they've been making $8 an hour at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. And now they're going to go back to 60 cents an hour. I've spent a lot of time in Haiti. You can't live on 60 cents an hour, even a Haitian. You can't do it. Yeah. So do people listen to you? <laughs> what, what was the reaction to that? <laughs> you know, some people listen to me. Um, I've been told so many times to write a book. The publisher who was in the audience approached me about writing a book after I did the TED Talk. Um, if, I, if I invest the time and energy to write this book, I, I don't want to do it just so that, oh, I wrote a book. I want people to read it. And I don't know, we'll see after a few months what the response to the views to the, to the talk are. They're, they're ho-hum right now. What I have learned, and I didn't know this going into it, is that most of these TED Talk people, they choose titles for their talks that are only loosely connected to what they're doing. <laughs> but they're flamboyant, shock and awe titles to get you to read them. Yeah. And my title of Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> oh, wow. What's that? Yeah. Can but you we do have talks out there that are titled, How Much Sex is Normal? Can you can you work sex into the, 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 the topic somehow? I'm going to work honey boo-boo into the topic. <laughs> That's repulsing enough that people are like, hey, let's listen to this. You you got a reaction uh, in the video with that, I noticed. Yeah, I got a good <laughs> laugh out of the crowd. You know, I think people think the reality is, I think anybody that listens to me and hears me agrees. But guess what? To make a change, it's really going to affect the lifestyle of a lot of Americans. Yeah. And so that's my approach. Okay, you're not a Christian. You don't care about people of color who live in the global south around the world. I, I get it. That's fine. Okay. You know, your dad or your grandfather was in the war. He came home. He had nothing. He worked hard. He built a company. You know, you made your money the old-fashioned way. You earned it. Why am I going to worry about giving it away or changing this or changing that? But I love Europe. I love traveling in Europe. I love France. I absolutely love the country of France. And I love the systems of the U.S. I love the opportunity of the U.S. I love health system that works, security that works. Education that works. I also love the, I love the illegal immigrant. 
but illegal immigration is not sustainable. So I'll root for the illegal immigrant trying to transform his life every day. And at the same time, I do not support illegal immigration. I do not support people protesting deportations. Sorry, stinks. You broke the law, you're here illegally, you gotta go. Mm -hmm. You can sleep slide by underneath the radar. Transform your family, keep your nose clean, doodles to you. I support you, I believe in you. Um, but the immigration we have right now is not sustainable. It's not sustainable in Western Europe. And a bell has been rung that cannot be unrung. So if you don't give a flip because, you know, you, you don't care about people of color south of our borders, that's fine. If you enjoy the life that our country has provided you, if you enjoy the benefits of capitalism in the U.S. or in Europe, it's not, hey, you ought to think about changing. It's, you got to change. You have to change <laughs> because the rate we're going is not sustainable. I, I, I really wish people would listen to my my talk to be to hear how the pieces go together. Yeah. Just hearing hearing someone rail against globalization or hearing Zuckerberg rail for globalization <laughs> doesn't tell a complete picture. But when you put the pieces together, it makes sense. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer to fix it. That's the problem. That's the missing piece from my yeah. talk. Don't have the answer, but we got to start talking about it. I agree. I want to ask you, Two more questions before we wrap up. Have you seen people change? This podcast is about change through cross-cultural contact. Tell me a few people you've seen change. Give us some hope. <laughs> I've seen Hondurans change. I've seen Haitians change. You know, Haiti gets a really bad rap. Um, They've had so much aid there, so much money dumped in, so much dependence created, but not everybody in Haiti wants a handout. What they want is someone who will take some time to understand them, understand their culture, understand their language. You know, it's hard to find an American that can't rattle off a few phrases in Spanish, but you don't find Americans that speak French. I know they're out there, but they're, they're few and far between. You sure don't find many Americans that speak Haitian Creole. But when you're flying through Miami International Airport and you see all of the Americans in matching T-shirts flying to Haiti every day, and if you're not taking the time just to be able to connect with one person through language... And then you're going to come back to the U.S. and talk about how screwed up a country is, how screwed up a people are. You never, never invested enough to speak the language to know for yourself what's going on. You depended on a translator or you depended on someone down there that was in their financial best interest for you to think that Haiti was never going to improve because that, that could be somebody running a really bad children's home. And the way he gets money is having kids in really bad conditions. Americans sending sponsorship. He doesn't want you to know that can be better. They can do, you can run a home differently. That the only option for those kids is not to take them to another country. Let's create a great Haiti. You're going to stop illegal immigration, you create a great Honduras. You're going to stop illegal immigration, you create a great Nigeria or wherever. So um, we've expanded our, our, our social enterprise program into Haiti. Our, our, I mean, we got, we got phenomenal, we got a hundred 
200 and staff members. Our ministry is 100% Latino-led down here now. I'm just here for three weeks visiting. And instead of us sending Americans, which it's really expensive to send Americans to other countries to serve, to train, to teach, they adapt slowly to rough conditions. And it's really hard for Americans to learn other languages. I don't know why. The rest of the world learns languages really quick. So our, our expats that are going to serve in Haiti are from Honduras. And so our, our leather shop instructor, instructor, he opened our program in Haiti. And what we found is totally contrary to what we hear about Haitians. We find them wanting an opportunity to learn, want an opportunity to earn a wage. Now, here's the problem. And a lot of social enterprises, and we're, 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 ne- we're neck deep in this social enterprise thing. We generated $500,000 in revenue from it last year. We're not playing around with it. Just because you can go to whatever poor country and buy really nice artisan goods for really cheap and bring them back to the U.S. and sell them does not make you a social entrepreneur. Provided a new market for a guy who's barely scraping out a living. And now he continues to scrape out a living because you're paying him something miserable. Just because he is willing to work for something miserable doesn't mean it's right. Americans know better. But when you're starving, when your kids are sick, when your house is horrible shape, when you want to provide something for your family, you'll work for nothing because it's better than what you had. And we see so many socially minded entities or social enterprises that that's their MO is cheap production. And so our folks in Haiti, and so here's the reality in Honduras has a pretty good minimum wage actually for the economy here. Uh, Cause the minimum wage of Mexico is only like $150 a month. The minimum wage of Honduras is $350 a month. Minimum wage of Haiti is $90 a month. The problem with Honduras' minimum wage is the government doesn't have the resources or the mechanism to implement it, to enforce Mm. it. And the government removed the protections on the farmers. So you can say that a guy is supposed to make 350 bucks a month. But when you're the farm owner raising corn or melons or whatever it is, and there's no protection on your prices for your commodities, you can't pay more than $100 a month. But as Americans, we can. You know what it does? It hits my bottom line. It nails my bottom line. We had a large, organic, socially-minded grocery supplier based out of your hometown of Naperville, Illinois, um, find out about us. They've made number trips down. They wanted to carry our coffee in their stores. Unfortunately, right now, our production isn't large enough for them to be able to make it work because it just won't fill up the supply. But we sat at breakfast the morning before they left the country with their number one branding person. They don't put a brand in any store. They're in 33,000 stores. It's a $4 billion a year company. They don't put a product in any store that really this person has not signed off on. And she asked me, do you, do you want to be, do you want to be famous for San Lazaro Estate Coffee? Do you, do you want that name to be out there? I looked at her. I said, you know what? That'd be really cool. That'd be really cool for what we're doing on this mountain in rural Southern Honduras to be famous. And this brand I came up with to be really famous. But in the end, what I want to do more than anything is make sure we sell all of the coffee that 
everybody on that mountain that works for us. Good job. Because without it, they're back to local pay. My cost, my break even for our coffee is three and a half dollars a pound on the mountain before I even ship it to the U.S. That doesn't make sense in the coffee industry. You can't get rich selling coffee with our prices, but we know what it costs to raise coffee and we know what we're paying our workers. And even when we had our audit this year by Fairtrade USA, they were blown away what we're paying our guys because nobody pays what we pay. We're just paying minimum wage. How can fair trade, the certifying entity, be surprised we're paying so much? <laughs> Something's wrong. So back to Haiti, our workers are making $90 minimum wage just because that's what the government of Haiti says you can pay workers in your sweatshop. It does not mean it's right. But we have seen that in Honduras, with $350 a month in rural Honduras, big cities, different story, but most of the country's rural. That's kind of the definition of a developing nation, a very agrarian-based economy. We have seen that with $350 a month, a family will stay together. Dad won't set off and flee to the U.S. He can provide for his family. He can dream about a future. So that's kind of our benchmark. We use that standard from Honduras as our guide in Haiti. And it blows people away with the opportunity they have. Again, it's just 15 bucks a day. No one's getting rich. But guess what? Haitians aren't lazy. They don't want a handout. They're more than happy to work. They just want to be compensated. And you got all these Christian do-gooders going around the world so excited how cheaply they can build stuff, how cheaply they can run an orphanage, how cheaply they can run a school, how little you have to pay people. BS! You're wanting to raise kids in the name of Jesus Christ and pay the caregivers miserable wages and you expect their treatment of those kids to be good? Would you let your kids spend the night in that children's home? One night? It's pretty ironic. So uh, the, 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 the folks are our, so, are our social enterprise program, their lives being changed. You know, we got a young man here in Honduras. His dad's been a truck driver his whole life, driving big rigs all over Central America, up and down the Pan-American Highway, from Panama to Puerto Cotes. And, his, and he's never seen that minimum wage. And his 19-year-old son, who went through our program, who did junior high with us, did his vocational training with us, who now works in our leather shop, is making minimum wage. And he can do more. He's paid on production. That's transformational. Our students are paying off their mom and dad's debt, getting mom's hypertension, uh, under control, uh, paying off dad's loan from some bad farming idea he had that went south. They're, they're, they're shaping their futures. And uh, absolutely, we make money as well. Uh, we're running a business. We're generating revenue that we can use to put right back into the training programs. But our cost of production on, our, on all of our products um, is is um, quite astronomical when compared to what we could buy it from out of India per se, from just or even out of just a factory, a production factory in Mexico. You know, uh, we use we use standard markup of one hundred percent basically. If it costs us, you know, seventy dollars to get a bag to the U.S. after production, after shipping, after uh, the cost of importation, um, if it costs us $70, then our retail price is $140. That gives us ability to cover our cost to run a shop in the U.S., to pay people in the U.S. to do it, and to be able to provide a discount for wholesale partners and then be able to make a profit as well. We're very transparent about it. We, 
all of our, all of our workers know what we're selling our price for. We have a gift shop. We have a gift shop here in Honduras that the workers go in and they see the prices. It's no secret. I would love to uh, have a whole nother conversation getting in on, into all the nitty gritty of everything you've built. Uh, but I, I want to ask just one last question. Can you just tell me a good story, a good travel story, a good experience you've had? It could be related to anything. It could be in Haiti. It could be in Buenos Aires. It could be anywhere. What's something that happened to you? There's so many. <laughs> There's so many. But, you know, um, in the U.S., we, we're very suspicious of strangers and we don't want people bothering us in the evening. Two years ago, well, three years ago, was my first exposure into uh, a lot of Europe. We spent two weeks driving from, um, rented a car and started out at um, Gibraltar uh, in southern Spain. Drove all the way through Spain, then up through uh, southern uh, southern France, and, and, and then flew out of Paris. And a friend of mine, uh, He's actually um, on our Haiti committee. Uh, he lives in Houston, uh, is French, born and raised, French family, long, long history. Uh, came to the U.S. looking for opportunity. He owns a large uh, mechanical company in Houston. And he's like, hey, you know, you ought to go visit my cousins in Saint-Jean-de-Luz. It's a little uh, little beach town in, in uh in southern France on the Atlantic coast and um, in Basque country. <laughs> and okay, I couldn't speak Spanish at the time. I mean, I couldn't speak French at the time. I speak Spanish. I speak French now fluently, but I was still learning then. So my friend's cousin and her husband, they're both cops. He's the uh, police chief for the whole place. We meet them in town. They roll out the red carpet, walking tour all over the town. And it was me, my wife, my two kids, and my parents in tow. Then we go back to their flat, <laughs> their house, and, and we start the French tradition of of the apple, which is, you know, I guess in the U.S. we'd call it like appetizers and drinks, but it starts early, and the alcohol keeps coming. <laughs> yeah. And it was sausage and ham and more sausage and ham and then cheese and then a different kind of cheese. <laughs> And beer and wine and beer and wine <laughs> and laughing, trying to have a conversation in a combination of <laughs> French, Spanish, and English, trying to communicate. I mean, no, I don't, the Americans I know would not have done this in a million years, really. We move into supper and um, and I'm not, I'm not a big drinker, so this was, uh, <laughs> it's like, whoa, I, I like a nice glass of wine and enjoy a good cold beer, but, uh, it was like, whoa, because it just kept coming, you know, <laughs> we have supper, finish supper and finish a couple more glasses of wine. I was very fortunate that I had my wife as additional driver on the rental vehicle because there's no way. I don't think I could even walk home. <laughs> and then they just treated us like royalty. They don't know us from Adam. And then they're like, oh, hold on, hold on. And they come out with this little box. And he gets that little thing and starts prying the lid off. It was nailed down. Some brand new bottle of some famous high dollar French cognac. <laughs> Even in some wilder days in college, I didn't do shots of whiskey. 
<laughs> so they hand out shot glasses and cubes of sugar. And uh, that's how we finished off the evening. <laughs> Man. At two o'clock in the morning, my system purged it all. <laughs> I, my story was the sausage and weird cheeses that got to me. My wife says I can't handle liquor. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for speaking English, for choosing that of your many languages. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Hey man, it's been a blast. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity to reflect. I've had a I've had a bad week. Have you and, uh, having the opportunity to reflect on uh, why I'm doing this? Um, it it was powerful for me tonight. It was a blessing for me tonight. Well, when a guy asked me. I had an American ask me yesterday at lunch, what's your favorite part about being down here? And at that moment, my response was nothing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> because outside of it being a lot of people, it's still a business and it's made up of humans. Yeah. And uh, this, this man I know, I really like him a lot. He's been a church leader. You might have heard of his name's Bob Voigt. He yeah. told me one time, he said to me, ministry would be a whole lot easier if it didn't involve humans. <laughs> it's yeah. true. So go check out Mission Lazarus right now. Mission Lazarus. You can find their webpage. Just type it in missionlazarus.org. That's Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. There's a link on our webpage and on our Facebook page. You can donate. You can go to Honduras or Haiti. You can talk to Jared. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. Also, join us on Facebook. I don't know if you're new to the podcast uh, if you're interested in stories like this, stories of how travel reroutes lives in big ways and small, what sticks with me is Jared's answer to the question, what happened to him? Being able to hear people's stories changes you. So what's in the way of your listening? That Mark Twain quote, by the way, was, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, and charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music at the beginning and ending of this show, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another good story. <laughs>